0: For the turn up this podcast, I'm Mike. He him, and tonight I'm here with Ward. He him as well, and our special guest tonight from the Cars and Comrades podcast. We have Connor, Brian, Brandon, and Zach. All he him pronouns as well. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. What's wow. On? Pretty pretty good. Yeah. yeah it's real sausage here again tonight. All he hims. Yeah, that's true. Uh, no, but so I wanted to ask you, Connor. Did you get through all of the things that you had set aside for part one last week, or are we still kind no. of in part one territory?
1: So we're kind of shifting here. So it did take a while to get through, which is fine. Um, I think we were setting the scene on the last episode, kind of talking about the early life of Walter uh, and obviously Victor as well. Part one, I kind of had set through world war II, but I think it makes sense. This episode, I'd like to keep in that pre world war two period uh, and mm-hmm. talk about some of the major strikes and organizing tactics used by the UAW and Walter and Victor and some of the, political maneuvering within the union and the labor movement overall. Mm-hmm. So this will kind of be like a part two. And then I think there's probably going to be a part three, um, the post-World
0: War II period. So I'm hoping you guys are okay with that. It, uh, but I got nothing but time. We can make as many parts as we want. I think we'll probably get through more tonight because I'm not as drunk as I was last week. Last week, I kept stopping everything for random rants about whatever. Um, I don't even remember now, I still have to get back to the playback to listen to what I interrupted for so many goddamn times, but... Uh, I really enjoyed it, actually. I mean, I had a great yeah, time, it, was good. it just wasn't like the most productive, uh, information-heavy episode, because we just kept going off on tangents, not that that's a problem, hey, it's and, a podcast.
1: I was on fucking
2: mushroom, Are you drinking wine <laughs> with me,
1: I'm currently on mushroom. I think we were all just having a good time last week, and so, you know, hey, we have a very uh, tangent-heavy podcast, so... Yeah, we got information we plan to get through, but then there's a tangent and then another and then another. Yeah. And it's like the inception of tangents. It's like, well, we're four tangents deep, you know, <laughs> tangents within tangents. Dude, we uh, 15 minutes worth of information, that's good for an hour and a half long episode. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, I think uh you're listening to the podcast for the uh analysis, not so much the uh detailed facts. Which is why we're going to include the sources so that if you want that, you can get the kind of that unvarnished story, which is going to be way less in depth than kind of what we've got. But it'll give you a good idea of what we're talking about way more in depth. you mean, well, I'm going pretty. So I, I'm, I'm referencing a bunch of uh, documentaries and podcasts, but like mm-hmm. I'm try, I've tried to put them all kind of together. So like any one of them on their own is going to be severely lacking.
0: Oh, I gotcha. OK, cool.
1: Um, in a lot of that info. And that's just, that's the way it is. It's so you're not going to get like that perfect linear, Hey, this date, this happened, that date that happened. Hey, look at this. Isn't this cool? It's cool to see like the video from like the early thirties of all these strikes and stuff. Like they have video and you can talk hear from the people who were there, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is incredibly valuable and they're not going to sit there and pontificate on it. Like we are for quite as long, but it's one of the main documentaries we use brothers on the line. It's good. I think it gets a lot of information out there in a very short period of time. But after, you know, when I watched it again and I found myself pausing it every two or three minutes to be you know, as I'm watching it with my partner and I'd have to pause it and I'd be like, Oh, this is the part where they skip over all of this information. Here's the part where they totally miss all of this. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's a good, quick, uh, quick and dirty kind of documentary, but there is a lot that they of detail that they don't include. It's it's weird to
2: be looking at Walter Ruther through rose colored glasses.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, I think it was made one of the producers or directors or someone was someone in the Ruther family, right? I forget Um, what their name was. Yeah. They were very much involved. Um, Yeah. Like Victor was heavily involved with it and all that. So, you know, there was some rose colored glasses. They also did kind of go through some of the criticism, but like.
2: They didn't Not have that. a former drum member
1: on there. They did. Right. It was uh General Baker.
2: So oh, I didn't even pay attention to the name. Okay, fuck, that's cool.
1: Yep. Yep. So I was like, "Oh shit, all right, that's there he is." So, um yeah, so they did include some of that, but like it was a very small uh chunk. We'll, we'll get a little bit more into that like part 3. Um yeah. So And they also uh, they they had some footage in there from the drum movie. What was it called? Um, Have you heard the news or something? Finally got the news, I think. Uh, I can never remember the name of that movie, but it's something like that. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to that. I don't know if that'll be in part three, but uh, when we get to drum and all that, you know, that's a really interesting movie. I would recommend it. And it's I believe it's free on Vimeo or something back to our drum episode if you want to learn the actual name of that movie, because I'm sure we say it there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alright, well then, uh, so yeah, last week was kind of set in the scene. I will do a brief recap, and then we'll kind of get right back into it, starting with how everything was created, and then the actual uh, organizing and strikes at the Big Three.
2: Finally got the news, that documentary.
1: Yep, there it is. So, we talked last week about kind of the beginning of the story and setting the scene for how shitty labor was back in the early 20th century. Um, So back when most industrial workers did not have union representation, you know, we learned that shit was bad. Um, You didn't just get like yelled at by a boss, like you might get beat up by several thugs. So like, if you weren't working fast enough, they would just beat your ass because that was somehow acceptable before we had unions. Cool. It's just capitalism in its most raw form. Super cool. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the, this is the world that all the libertarians and the extreme right wingers are trying to bring us back to. Is like where your boss can hire thugs and come to beat you up if you're not working fast enough or if you talk about unions or anything like that. you just get a better job, bro. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah of just course. Get a better job at a place that doesn't beat people as often.
1: Yeah. It's, on your it, bro, it's
3: a your
0: problem.
1: Exactly. And, you know, at the time that was normal and workers did not have paid time off or any health care benefits. Like they didn't give a fuck. There was none of that. Um, so like at the time we'd, I think, already won the eight hour day, the 40 hour work week. We we kind of had weekends sort of by this time. But like that didn't really factor in for most people uh, because these factories were still They could just ignore it. Um, There was no real agreement, and they were the only game in town a lot of times. Um, So that's
2: how true that still is as I long for the eight-hour workday. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep.
1: I mean, even in in a small sense, you know, we don't have nine-to-fives anymore. Everything's an eight-to-five, and that's just because the capitalists stole your one-hour lunch. Yeah. They just took that from you. So, you know, they will always try and claw claw it all back so whatever gains we win we've always got to be fighting and of course that's why we hope for revolution rather than reform or that's one of the reasons at least um because we know they'll they'll try and take every last bit of it back you know something you see is like oh it's of course it's a good thing that we don't have children working anymore right not to the rich they are not happy about that still to this day they don't view that as good yeah Every time I start
2: softening on any of my more like radical insurrectionary views, I just read three pages of labor history, and I'm like, "Nope, burn it all down." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and how many fast
1: food places have signs out front that say "Now hiring fourteen and fifteen year olds"? Yeah, right. More than I'm comfortable with. I reduced pay, of course. If you're fourteen, you get eight dollars an hour. If you're fifteen, you get nine. If you're you know an adult, you'll get ten
2: because that's that's the way that it is now. Jesus Christ! Oh yeah, we totally got away
1: with child labor. We don't do that anymore.
2: All right, yep. now uh, anybody want to put bets on how long we start seeing now uh, accepting fourteen and fifteen year olds like those signs in front of the military recruitment offices? Oh <laughs> <laughs> oh. Lord,
3: I don't think it's that far away, especially whenever they had uh, they added women to the draft. Did they actually do that? to happen? Yes. Wow. We we got rid of
2: child slavery and uh, child soldiers and stuff by redefining what constitutes a
1: child. I'm just thinking of uh, that scene in the end of uh, Starship Troopers where there's a little kid saying, I'm doing my part. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
3: Would you like to know more?
1: I mean, even if they're not in the military, we still have, you know, J-R-O-T-C programs and all those that are basically just
3: military indoctrination for youth until they can be enlisted totally normal but if that was happening in another country it's so dystopian and authoritarian yeah
0: yeah an all american exceptionalism people would be fine with them tomorrow operating the drones like if they were like using call of duty controllers they would be fine (laughs) with like 14 15 year old kids doing that tomorrow
3: dude they uh they swapped uh, xbox controllers a long time ago for drone operators They couldn't train drone pilots on like the actual hardware. So they fucking like implemented a revision kind of thing where they could hook up a fucking Xbox controller to the system because all the young recruits couldn't operate the actual system, but they could operate a fucking Xbox 360 controller no problem. Right.
2: She sounds like the cornerstone of Grimes' political economy.
3: Yeah. See? <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe she's going, maybe she's got something. Maybe. <laughs> I mean that's also the
1: basically the plot of that movie Toys, the Robin Williams movie from the 90s Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't know that they were doing drone strikes in that movie. Uh so, yeah, I think I mean, spoiler alert, but the uh twist at the end is that um they have all these children like basically playing video games, but they're murdering civilians in Afghanistan or
0: something.
2: Also, or Enders, Robin game, Williams, uh, Enders, Enders game. Yeah, I was about to you know, say, basically game as the well. same thing.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Robin Williams has been a long-time advocate for drone strikes. I don't know if you knew yeah. that. But.
0: <laughs> not so much lately. Not since 2014.
3: Yeah, no. Jeez.
0: Fuck. Too <laughs> soon? Sorry. No, I, I actually miss the guy terribly. I miss his uh, movies and his comedy even. But, uh, yeah, man, no, I'm, get over it. I'm sorry, I spoke out against Robin Williams like that.
3: <laughs> All right. Well, as long as this is not Papa Stalin, we're fine. <laughs> 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 All
1: right. Uh. So anyway,
3: back, sorry, back to ahead. labor history. What did he say? missed it, shit. Dude, we just get so derailed. Oh yeah. <laughs>
4: um.
1: So anyway, we we know kind of just labor was was weak at the time. Um. Shit was bad for workers. Uh. The union kind of cropped up to protect workers, and some of the union organizers wanted to have a broader vision of, you know, leading to revolution uh, and some did not. Um, so there was, you know, obviously we have, you know, typical you know, socialists at the time. Uh, and then there's communists as well, all organizing in these unions. And there's power struggles and this and that. But back in the days, things were bad for workers. And so there was kind of a just a natural need for workers to band together and improve their situation.
2: This is also like the peak era for like CPUSA too before they became like weird and revisionist and reformist. Mm.
1: Yeah. And they come up in our story a little bit kind of tangentially but like the Communist Party of the USA did have a lot to do with the labor movement and the communists that were organizing largely with the CIO unions. So I did just want to um quickly kind of reiterate the sorts of questions that I mentioned in the last episode of like what I'm trying to consider because hopefully the next labor leaders are listening to this episode at some point. <laughs> you know, and I think there's just there are things to learn from this story and it's you know there's a lot to it. It's it's pretty multifaceted. So again, I'm not making any hard answers on this, but I, I think it's important to just like think about while we engage with the material. So just kind of things to think about are just how did union power rise in the first place? And then how did it later fall? And what can we learn from the strategy pursued by Walter Ruther or his opposition within the labor movement, uh, which would be more the communists? Um, how should we think about the dynamic between getting power within the capitalist system and build movements outside the centers of power? Uh, how should we think about making compromises and giving concessions in order to get gains for working people? How should we think about political education for union membership? Is it better to have those large unions or more radical members? Uh, What alternatives might exist to the kind of political engagement we saw from unions in the 20th century? Uh, How should we think about the very small, pivotal moments throughout history that shaped the world as we know it? Kind of examples for that are like the fact that the Batista regime in Cuba did not, you know, kill Fidel Castro on multiple occasions when they could have, you know, that that's like a small decision that really impacted the world. He's you fucked up. Well, exactly. And so there a few moments uh, like that in this story when it comes to the companies that they are organizing against. There's cases where the right person happens to be in the right position of power to give a win to a union. This kind of stuff is something we have to like think about realistically um, because a lot of the labor movement in the U.S. is defined by luck. Uh, Unfortunately, Um, how should we think about the very real pressures placed on unions by the global capitalist system, since we know capital can move and workers cannot, uh, and that there is competition between different companies, whether they're union or not? uh, How should we consider these different pressures and how they might affect how unions should or could organize? Uh, And then, of course, lastly, how should we think about legality in future labor struggles? Uh, if the game is rigged by ruling class and lawmakers, can anything really be gained by playing by their rules? What alternatives might exist? Uh, and how should we think about abandoning legality? If, should we choose to do that in any sense? So, sorry to sound pedantic, but I, I do want to just list these kinds of things up because they were things that I thought about while going through this story. That was good. <laughs> liked it. That's good. I like that. That's fine. I already forgot about half of them. Yeah, that's fine. You know, yeah. Rewind if you if you if you
3: uh, need to hear him again, but probably not. So, unfortunately, um, sure I can't rewind. We're doing this live. <laughs> well, yeah, you can't, but We're listeners can. <laughs> so okay, we I shouldn't uh, drink so much on the podcast. Nah, it's all good. Yeah, you and me
1: both. So you know, we kind of get that you know Walter Ruther comes from uh, a socialist family around the turn of the century. Uh, his father was a socialist, um, and he taught. You know, Walter, Victor and Roy and Ted and, uh, you know, all the Ruther kids learned from their socialist father. So pretty early on, they were, you know, at least socialists. They were not communists, although Walter and Victor did spend some time in Soviet Russia uh, teaching uh, workers in Russia to make retired Ford models um, after Henry Ford sold all that equipment to Russia. So of course, you know, they spent their time traveling Asia and whatnot, like we talked about, and they did spend some time in Soviet Russia, where Walter did make a point of criticizing um, the inefficiencies he saw in the plants. So he was pretty anti-communist, even when he was in Soviet Russia. He was anti-communist when he came back. He was anti-communist later, after the Taft-Hartley Act. Uh, Walter Ruther was very anti-communist. Lame. Um yeah. So here's Damn. something.
2: I wonder, like, I never actually knew the thing before this about uh the about Ford selling all of the equipment and machinery to, to Russia. Do you <laughs> think that if Henry Ford had known that they would use it to defeat the Nazis single-handedly, <laughs> that he would have reconsidered selling it to them?
3: Yeah. Yeah, he would not have sold that shit.
2: Shout out to Henry Ford for helping us defeat the Nazis.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean he was uh, he was giving with one hand and taking away with the other you know yeah I think it was it was Lenin right who said uh, the capitalists will sell us the rope with which we hang them or whatever mm-hmm. yep. was it yeah, the last capitalist we hang will be the
2: one who sold us the rope yep that's, that's it that's the quote
1: so yeah again I think we talked about it last week but Walter and Victor did Uh, After Walter was fired uh, from Ford um, for I think he was organizing on a campaign for the Socialist Party of America. So like their presidential campaign, they put up whoever. And Walter was like uh, organizing rallies for him. And that got him fired. So then he and Victor took the opportunity to travel through Europe and Asia on bike. And, you know, they did that. They spent two years in Russia uh, where they were hired to teach. Workers in Russia, how to operate the machinery to make uh, the Model T that Henry Ford had sold them. So they came back to the States, I think it was 1932. uh, And that's really where it was after that time that they really started organizing with the UAW, which was uh, fledgling at the time. So, kind of here's how the UAW gets created basically. The UAW was created in 1935 as part of the American Federation of Labor, uh, so the AFL. The first president was Francis J. Dillon, and he was president from 1935 to 1936. The union vice president at the time was Homer Martin. He'll become important later. And after the initial AFL-CIO split, the socialist Homer Martin was elected to be the second president of the UAW in 1936, and he was president until 1938. I think I've got somewhere in here, which let me check my notes. Yeah, so here's kind of we went through last week, but just to recap. At the AFL convention in 1935, John L. Lewis, who was the leader of the United Mine Workers at the time, created the committee for the for industrial organization within the AFL. So the first CIO was like a group within the AFL, which the AFL did not appreciate. And they expelled those unions who were with uh, John Lewis the next year. So that's where we get like our first president of the UAW is with the AFL. Right. Then after the split, his vice president, Homer Martin, is then elected to be president. And that's the UAW CIO. Right. So mm-hmm. there there was that split, um, but it was initially created when John L. Lewis kind of created that organization within the AFL. So that's split number one. But don't worry, there'll be a, a reconciliation between the two later. Boo. <laughs> yeah, boo.
2: I didn't do any in-depth. Uh, reading on Homer Martin and about uh, Walter Ruther's very specific uh, political beliefs. So we know that they were both socialists. Do we know anything about like their actual like theoretical stances
3: on things, or were they just like general like big picture socialists? So
1: I can answer that. Walter and Victor Ruther were socialists. All right, that's what they called themselves. You know, in a lot of ways, especially later on, they would become more like social Democrats or democratic socialists, wherever you want to draw that fucking line. I don't care. They were more in that vein later on, especially earlier on. It seems as though they were maybe more, quote unquote, radical, but I don't think they were ever really pro like workers revolution and being anti-communist as they were. They were not looking at that model like communism wasn't their end goal, I don't think. Mm-hmm. which, you know, it's sad. It's something you know, I almost don't understand. Want to, they just wanted to rein it in a little bit. Seemingly, yes. Now, at the time, they were called socialists, Back in the day when people didn't have the same kind of access to information that we have now, like now we can have, oh, oh, God, I, I can't even make fun of it. But like, you know what I'm talking about, where there's like eight, like, oh, here's my eight labels or whatever. I'm a, you know, anti-revisionist, anarcho-mutualist, whatever the fuck, you know. anarcho man. Yeah, that wasn't quite as prevalent at the time because it really was just workers wanting worker power. Mm-hmm. There was revolutionary types. There was not revolutionary types. There was plenty of literature out there, but a lot of people were pretty broad. And I think in a lot of ways, the more revolutionary folks were focused on organizing regular working people. And sometimes that meant meeting them where they're at, which, you know, is a thing we do today. Um, We see that all the time. Uh, so it's very normal, but they were considered socialists. Homer Martin was considered a socialist, although he was opposed him and Walter were on different sides of many fights. So uh, part of that was because Homer Martin was an interesting character, which we'll get into a little bit more later. But yeah, Walter and Victor were very anti-communist and at times like they fall for like these ridiculous tropes of communists. Like there's points at which like Walter will describe in instance, but when we get to it, I will tell you, this did not happen. So, like, he recounts this, like, situation at a convention where, oh, blah, blah, blah. This happened, it's like, no, that didn't happen. 100% did not happen. Yeah. I am perfectly happy saying that. Despite, you know, I don't have evidence that it didn't happen, but, like, when I read it, you'll know. You'll be like, yeah, it didn't fucking happen. Um, mm-hmm. So, he was trying to rein in the system, like he said, and he was a little bit more conservative in, in that respect. So... It's it's kind of hard to put a exactly pin where his ideology was, but he, you know, general socialist, anti-communist, somewhere in that vein, basically. I don't follow that ideology at all. I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't an anarchist. He wasn't a communist. He
0: was something in between. Just be a communist. They're going to call you a communist anyway. So just be one. Big facts. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Which... Like he, Mike, you're not paying attention. He went to Russia and he didn't like it. So communism's bad. <laughs>
3: Irrefutable. He got cold. Yeah. He got cold <gasps> one time. Mike. didn't like it. So it doesn't work.
2: Yeah. He personally blames communism for Siberia being cold.
1: <laughs> yeah, which we discussed being probably a little bit embellished. Um Yeah. So that's, you know, and it, I think um, it was in the interview, which, again, we'll, we'll probably link with Michael Parenti and David Emery, where uh, David Emery points out that, hey, you can you can criticize communism um, or communist uh, movements and it will not get you any love from anyone who thinks you're reasonable. They're still going to fucking hate you. Um, and that's that's the truth. Be a communist because separating yourself from it at times is like oh well, I don't want that it's like well they fucking hate you anyway they hate Bernie Sanders they call Joe Biden a fucking Marxist Wait, yeah. what is the point Wait, you cannot appease those fucking people so you know stop being scared and like actually look into the history like be unafraid oh, when you're looking at political ideologies because they're calling you a communist either way
3: yeah Have but of course seen, uh, Joe Biden's entry in conservopedia oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 it's a good one it's uh, incredible. Yeah. Political beliefs, socialism with Chinese characteristics, <laughs> communism, Xi Jinping thought, Marxism, fascism,
0: white supremacy. <laughs> Aside from the fascism and white supremacism, like, based as fuck. But like,
3: <laughs> If like, only it was true, though.
0: Yeah.
2: That's the Joe Biden, well, I was I was going to say that's the Joe Biden I'd vote for, but, yeah, the fascism on white supremacy really threw me off the trail. But, yeah.
0: You better do well. Again, we're talking about
1: people who don't know what any of those fucking terms mean at all, though. So, you know, yeah. If only liberals were as cool as conservatives thought they were, we're right? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. By the way, the uh, the Conservapedia in- entry for E equals MC squared is hilarious. Oh my yeah, god! I least... I'll let you all uh, read that at your own time, but it's it's pretty <laughs> insane. Why <laughs> I, I can't? Why would that even be on there? Like that's I, not. The- I don't know, because, I mean, because uh, I was a socialist, so obviously yeah, that's right. fake news. And and equals MC squared is fake news. Jewish, too.
3: <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, they too. don't they don't uh, go out and say that, but there's a few dog whistles in there. I like how after sure. the intro, the first thing is description for the layman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so listen while we tell you some bullshit. <laughs> they referenced twilight oh god twilight zone fuck no. off all right i'm closing <laughs> this
1: <laughs>
3: that's from the e equals
1: mc squared conservopedia yeah, yeah. oh my god all right yeah listeners go check pause the pause this episode go check that out real quick and then come yes. back to us wow
3: it's oh, the best shit i've seen I the, I do like the the Joseph Biden one cuz it's like he began occupying the white house, you know.
4: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's like the first line. Occupy the
2: white house would have been so much cooler than occupy Wall Street. Oh
1: yeah. <laughs> All right. So anyway, back to kind of the early beginnings of the UAW and the CIO, the third president of the UAW was a man named R.J. Thomas. His full name was Roland J. Is in J.A.Y. Thomas. And he was elected after Homer Martin was, uh, and I put this in quotes, ousted. That will become yeah, important. Uh, apparently, Homer kind of went off the rails a little bit. Um, and, UAW workers tell stories of how like near the end he'd be in the union hall where people are like trying to eat their lunch and shit. And like, he's walking on the fucking tables, preaching the gospel for reference. He was a former preacher. He was, so he was a socialist preacher who got involved in the labor movement. And so, yeah, he would just like, he was walking on tables, bothering people with the gospel. Um, and he was apparently by all accounts, super paranoid about fucking everything. And take it with a grain of salt because uh it is coming from Walter but uh Walter did allege that he Homer had showed him at least once a briefcase with $50,000 in cash in it uh which he believed came from either the mob or perhaps Harry Bennett which we have not introduced in depth yet but uh Harry Bennett was uh Henry Ford's most beloved thug um, yeah, and yeah he was a real piece of shit like Wow. Incredible. So for Homer to potentially be taking any kind of money from Harry Bennett uh, is like literally the worst thing. That is just 100%. That is the biggest betrayal of the workers that is imaginable. Like nothing Walter ever did could compare to that. So we don't know exactly where this money came from. It's a very small part of the story, but Homer Martin definitely went off the rails and definitely was like, not doing the union any favors. So he was not a mm-hmm. uh, president for very long, but yeah, he did some shit and he does some shit again later after being uh, ousted as well. So more to come. Oh. <laughs> the, the U uh, S labor history is marred in leftist infighting just everywhere. It's constant. And this story is um, going to involve quite a bit. And this is one of those cases so anyway, uh, R.J. Thomas was uh, elected after Homer Martin was, you know, uh, elected out, and he served as president from 1938 to 1946. During this period, the UAW developed into a dynamic and stable union. He lost the presidency by a handful of votes to Walter Ruther in 1946, uh, but he was elected the first vice president uh, under Walter Within the UAW, Thomas had led a CPUSA-affiliated faction that supported the Soviet Union, while Ruther led a liberal and progressive faction that opposed the Soviet Union. So it's a bit of a split within the UAW at that time. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into it later, but uh, these are kind of the two sides. There's like a, a progressive and a communist side. And R.J. Thomas, the third president, was uh, leading the communists. During the World War II and until 1946 in the UAW, the communists had outnumbered the liberals uh, in the executive committee. So, but nice. by 19, yeah, so they had pretty tremendous power in the UAW at this time, and arguably the UAW was doing great at this time. I was gonna say, um, I'm gonna guess I mean,
0: that's when they made their most gains and made the most progress and everything.
1: Yes, uh, it's seemingly now. Again, we're here to. Kind of criticized Walter a little bit but Walter did do some very good shit too and he was not a fucking idiot um, so th- he did care about working people quite a bit and he did come up with some really good actual on the ground strategies but at this time the UAW was doing very very well and a lot of that is like RJ Thomas was the president but the UAW was doing very well in part in Detroit almost entirely because of uh, Walter and Victor there and their strategies for organizing at this time. Nice. Um, yep. So uh, anyway, at this time, the communists outnumbered the liberals in the executive committee, but by 1947, as U S and Soviet tensions grew, uh, workers' support of the communists waned a little bit. Um, and this is kind of important to keep in mind. Uh, a series of bitter internal disputes led to Thomas losing the office of the vice presidency in the following year's election uh, with most of the leading communists replaced and what became known as the biggest setback of all time for communists in the American labor movement. So this was, this was a loss. Um, Part of it was, uh, you know, of course, from growing Soviet tensions and the U S propaganda machine. And this is to their credit. I mean, this was before that propaganda machine had really been sophisticated. Um, It wasn't until after world war II where they really had to contend with something that was more like what we see today. So that's that was a new challenge at the time. Um, it's a challenge we still have today, obviously. But of course, with social media and stuff, we're kind of seeing that break through a little bit. Uh, and I think we have to kind of take lessons from this and learn how do we go forward? How do we avoid that propaganda machine? How do we kind of combat that kind of stuff? Because we're seeing it happen today with like China um, quite a bit. So again, these are those lessons we kind of have to be thinking about. So let's get into... The kind of what I'm calling the rise of the UAW uh, before World War II. And so this is where kind of things really start to pop off. This is where that organizing actually comes into play. And here's the kind of strategies pursued by uh, Walter and Victor, who, again, by no accounts were they dumb in their organizing, they were some of the best. So on March 7th, 1932, There was a march on the River Rouge Ford plant. Okay, so this is really the first of the big three, uh, which are Ford, GM and Chrysler. This march was against the largest plant, I think, at the time in Detroit. And it was Dearborn, Michigan, but that's right by Detroit. And it was situated on the, I think, whatever, the Rouge River or whatever. Mm. That's why the plant was named that. It was on that river. It is what it is. For this, uh, I think it's important now uh, before we get too into this particular strike, we're going to introduce kind of our. Can't remember if this is our first or our second villain, but uh, this is one of the main villains in this entire story, and that is Henry Bennett. So let's talk about our. Oh, excuse me, Harry Bennett. Yeah, I'm stupid.
3: He's not. He's not worthwhile getting his name right. Fuck him
1: yeah fuck this guy
2: for real fuck I'm not this super guy. acquainted with this guy so I'm, I'm going to learn something
3: oh
1: yes you will now I can say that Harry Bennett was a real piece of shit but he was also a very interesting piece of shit um, this guy was fucking bonkers like I'm going through the story I'm like yo how much of this is true come on really mm-hmm. fucking tigers and lions What? Yeah. why aren't tigers and lions in this story that's fucking crazy but they are in this story I Harry... if it was him or or Henry Ford in their one of their mansions had a uh, like a little special house built for ducks to hang out. Oh yeah, that was Harry Bennett. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Harry Bennett had a special little house built for ducks on his property.
3: So cool guy, yes, like a fucking Peabody Hotel. Very normal. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you know, like the fucking
3: gall of oppressing workers
2: so that you have money to build a fucking house on your property for ducks.
0: <laughs> what, bro? It's my duck house. You'd be jealous. Just work harder. Yeah, I, I think I also
1: he would do he would do target practice in his office. Okay, you're get. Come on, you're taking up you're 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 taking up all the all right. story bits here. But yes, God, it's all sorry. true. <laughs> all, yes, all of it. Well, that last part was actually pretty sick, and I support that.
2: <laughs>
3: Yeah, I wish I could shoot my gun in my office. That'd be sweet. Okay,
1: but your job was not specifically to intimidate workers, and Harry's job was exactly that.
3: Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it takes a darker turn, then. It, like, sounded cool at first, but... Yeah. Fuck. They're
1: capitalists. It's never cool. It's just never cool. So... Uh, Harry Herbert Bennett uh, was born January 17th, 1892, and he lived to January 4th, 1979. He was a boxer, a Navy sailor, and a businessman. I mean, he was. Um, from the 1920s through 1945, he worked for Ford Motor Company and was best known as the head of Ford's quote-unquote service department. Um, which. Christ. Yeah, the service department, which has a perfectly nice sounding name, was actually uh Harry Bennett and his thugs working directly for Henry Ford and their job was one, stop any unionization talk, two to beat the shit out of workers who did not work fast enough. Um and I mean yeah, that's it. That that that's where that's their two points in their, you know, mission statement was stop unions, beat workers.
3: Mm-hmm. Hey, what does the uh, service department do? Oh, they service us with ass-whippings. yeah uh
1: and this is where the stories come from like workers who would say like literally they would one choose not to use the bathroom when they had to um because Ford service department employees would watch them and like make sure they're not taking too long and you know if they had to like if they had to do a number two um and the forward service department guys decided that it was taking too long they would literally go in pull them off the toilet and put them back to work that happened. Nice. That is, again, want to remind people, this is the world that libertarians, this is
3: what they're selling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, coming soon to an Amazon center near you. <laughs> yeah. Amazon center or Amazon town? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, Capitalist innovation is re-implementing
1: 100-year-old ideas. 100%. that's all it is told you they're just trying to claw back every gain that workers have made so he was uh head of ford's service department the company's internal security agency he gained tremendous trust from ford as the family bodyguard as well Uh, so this is kind of where he got very very close to uh henry ford himself and the two were like inseparable they were bros yeah. And they arguably had a closer, potentially closer relationship than Ford had to his own son, Edsel Ford. Yeah. Which it sounds pretty capitalist. <laughs> oh, 100%. So, kidnapping was always a major concern for the wealthy in those days, which, you know, was kind of true. Yeah. That's fun. That fucking rules. I said, let's
2: bring that back.
1: Yeah. For. The sake of anyone listening, that was parody and satire.
2: Reject modernity, embrace tradition.
3: <laughs> like, uh, I can totally see myself taking that up as a hobby.
2: Kidnapping as a hobby,
3: <laughs> maybe like a vocation. Okay, it's a little more serious than a hobby.
2: Like you make money doing it, but it's one of those situations where it's like. Do what you love, and you'll never
3: work a day in your life. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm not doing it for a profit incentive. Like, you know, I'm not going to be asking for a ransom, you know? <laughs> you're just, like, trying to get rid of some debunked. <laughs> okay, I misunderstood what your what your end goal was there. Okay, mm. so,
2: like, you're just, like, keeping them in the basement? Is this an execution people. scenario? What are we doing
3: here? I'll figure that out after I take them. All right. <laughs> I like your attitude.
1: Anyway, okay, so kidnapping was obviously a major concern. Um, Harry was responsible for protecting the Ford family. Uh, there was at least one kidnapping attempt on Edsel Ford, which was Henry Ford's son, uh, which was foiled by Harry. Uh, several of the alleged kidnappers were mysteriously never heard from again. Uh, I think it was mm. four. So it was like nine people involved. Five of them went to the police. Four of them they never heard from again. So they're dead, pretty sure. They were killed. Well, this was like a 100 years ago, so they're probably dead. Well, yes. Yes. Thank you, Brandon, for the clarification. (laughs) Uh, While working, (laughs) committed suicide. They shot themselves in the back of the head twice. Yeah, I'm not going to. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Gary Webb pipes. Yeah, I was going to be like, nah, I'm not going to make that joke. While working for Henry Ford, Bennett's union busting tactics made him an enemy of the United Auto Workers trade union. Obviously, he gained infamy for his involvement in activities such as the Battle of the Overpass, uh, a 1937 incident that we'll talk about later. So don't worry about it. Um, Harry Bennett got the job working for Ford after a street fight in 1916. So Harry was only 5'6", but he was a boxer in very good shape. He was spared from jail by a newspaper columnist and acquaintance of Henry Ford, who witnessed the fight and told police Harry wasn't at fault. At the time, the columnist was on his way to meet Ford and took Harry with him to introduce them. Uh, Ford had asked Harry if he could shoot, and Harry answered yes. That was apparently a job interview, and Harry got the job in security. So, let, let's think about what that job interview was and like how mm-hmm. fucked up. Yeah, that's... Can you shoot? That's it. So (laughs) you just got into a street fight and got away with it. Like, Hey Henry, I found this guy. He just beat up this dude. I think he'd be great for you. Yeah. Can you you shoot it workers? Okay, cool. Yeah. You're hired. Well, and of course (laughs) I I think it's noteworthy um, that, you know, this is like some media fucking asshole. Who's just like friends with the richest man in the world at the time. And it's like, Hmm, I wonder if his opinions were fucking worthwhile to have in, in that newspaper yeah probably not so that got him the job and uh yeah he was close with henry ever since um he had various residences in michigan including the great lakes landmark and ford motor company built pagoda house the asian themed boathouse on gross isle Um, yeah, I think that's how you say it. Michigan Uh, and Bennett's Lodge near Farwell, a log cabin style house in East Tawas and Bennett's Castle. And Bennett's Castle was an estate located on the Huron River in Ypsilanti, where he kept pet lions and tigers. It had 22 rooms and was outfitted with secret passages and hidden rooms, including a hidden bathhouse. So this was like a real-life Scooby-Doo mansion, basically. So, like, there's secret passages, there's, you know, the, like, am pretty sure it's got, like, the fireplace that turns. And it was owned by a real-life ghoul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. It was insane shit. Like, this was all built specifically for Harry, and, like, one of the things that it had was, like, the stairs, like, I think it was, like, in the back or something, but, like, the stairs were built in such a way that they were, like, Slightly different heights, so like they weren't oh, a consistent height. Oh so, yeah, I
0: remember that. Yeah,
1: and this is just like to prevent people from if they're pursuing him or something like they would not be prepared for that and they might trip and fall. Uh, again, Scooby Doo level shit. I mean, it's like it's like <laughs> if the Home Alone kid made a fucking mansion, that's where this guy lived. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> so, yeah, I think that was actually like a old timey medieval castle technique as well. Yeah, like Mm. defense from invaders. Mm. This, yeah, this sounds like Scooby Doo, Home Alone meets like Winchester House mansion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, like,
1: it's got all of that. It's also got it's patrolled by like a bunch of board security people. It's patrolled by lions, I think. Yeah, it was lions in the secret passages and stuff. Yeah, and sometimes he would just like let the lions out of their cages to roam the passages in case someone decides to come by at the wrong time. That's the first just, you
0: got to use tigers. Lions are no
1: good. Tigers work. I think he had tigers, too. I, I can't remember specifically, but he had
3: big cats, we'll say. <laughs> this asshole probably had ligers. <laughs> probably. I'm just really upset that he didn't complete it and have
1: bears. I mean, that would be the Michigan-type animal to have. Lions and tigers and bears? Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Wait, no, that's Chicago, right? Chicago Bears? Detroit Lions. <laughs> yeah. No, never there. mind. There's Detroit Lions? Is that a real thing? That's a, yeah, there's a baseball team, right? Detroit Lions? I think it's a football team. I think it's a football team, and I'm not even a sports guy. Which I am now 100% convinced that they got their name from Harry Bennett having Lions. That's what I was going to ask. That's it now. That's, that's yeah. canon. So Detroit Lions is the football and uh, Tigers is baseball. Uh, there you go. Yeah, they're wow. almost I'm going to go ahead and assume that the, it's not a coincidence. They have both of those in their city and this asshole who I had was both in of those in his house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's in my opinion. That's where that's coming from. I mean, it's more plausible than any other. explanation.
2: Yo, what if we actually got the order of this mixed up, and like those teams already existed? So when you were reading that, like he had lions and tigers in his house, it was actually just a bunch of like football and baseball players roaming the yeah. halls. <laughs> uh,
1: well, and they he do. It, he would let them out of their
2: cages. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I suppose they had the money. Like they could have bought baseball players and like professional sports players. They they clearly had the fucking money. If they got castle money, they got it. Now, so Bennett Castle and Harry's hideout were on one property um, and Harry's hideout was an above ground bunker made to look like a log cabin. So that was like in like the backyard, basically. And it had a secret attic with 360 degree gun posts (laughs) up at the top. Yeah. So like he could fire on people who were coming to get him. Uh, And Bennett's lodge in Farwell, Michigan had a moat, a literal moat. Now, despite these absurd security measures, apparently a mobster upset with Harry for foiling a kidnapping grift he had snuck onto the property, forced his way into the castle, and surprised Harry in his living room and shot him in the stomach. So nice. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, not nice. He should learn to shoot better because (laughs) Harry Bennett (laughs) lived to
3: see another day. So we need to train comrades.
1: Yeah. For real. Like, you should learn how to shoot properly because uh, this story is full of, like, failed assassination attempts. The whole story. Just everything. They learn to shoot people. My God.
2: It reminds me of the joke, what do you do if you see a cop with half his head blown off? Stop (laughs) laughing and keep shooting. (laughs)
1: Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, so, like, (laughs) he lived, and the cops, by the way, later got this fucking mobster, and, like, they just killed. No trial, no nothing. They just they killed him and they sent Harry a picture of it, demonstrating their who they were really working for, of course.
0: Um their class alliance. Yeah. They Michael Reinholden. Yeah,
1: exactly. And you know, back at this time, and this becomes, you know, relevant in some of the other stories we've we've got, but uh the police were like they were a private security force for the rich, more so than they are today. Like today they are, but like it's more institutional like it's just through how the institution is set up that it works today back then they were literally just paid they were just that's that's where their allegiances were um and it was a lot more visible than it is today which how people grew up in like the years following this like boomers and shit i don't understand how they ever had respect for police because they lived through the time when like the police were literally just paid fucking thugs for the rich Mm -hmm. more so than they are today. Again, I cannot make that more clear. They still are that, but like somehow they were worse. It's crazy. So I don't understand how like there is even cop worship in this country because like their origins, I mean, they were just so fucking blatant about it. So yeah, despite all the security stuff, it wasn't really that effective apparently. And uh, the mob is another kind of villain in our story. They kind of go after everybody. Unfortunately, they're involved top to bottom. They are trying to get, you know, sorts of lucrative business within within the plants among workers. So they were running like gambling operations and they were trying to like at one point sell fruit in the Ford plant. Yeah. Um, All right. So I think one of the things that they did was like they did some kind of threat against Henry Ford. I think this might've actually had to do with the initial kidnapping attempt of Edsel Ford, but the mob had some kind of kidnapping effort. It got foiled, whatever. And before long, the mob kind of got like a contract through one of their legal subsidiaries or whatever. They were given a contract to sell all the fruit in the river Rouge plant. Apparently that was lucrative. Uh, You know, that was one of their quote unquote legit businesses. So yeah. The mob was involved top to bottom. They were kind of going for the capitalists and they were going against the labor unions. Uh, one of the things they did with labor uh, unions was that the mob would like get involved in the union and then they would try and skim like uh, membership dues. And mm-hmm. they would also, on the other hand, sell non-strike agreements to companies. And so like they would guarantee that like, if you pay up for protection, Uh, We'll make sure that there's no strike here. Mm -hmm. So this is, of course, obviously undercutting the union. They were undercutting the companies. They had no allegiances besides making money for themselves. But I think there's something important to learn from kind of the mob here in that the mob got their way. Right. And they got their way from the companies. They got their way from the unions. They were always being fought, but like, and granted, I'm not saying the mob is good guys. They're a villain in our story. However, can we learn something from that in future labor struggles? Just a thought that I'm throwing out there. They got shit done.
0: They got their way. What can we learn from that? I, you know, I don't know. This you just <laughs> the lesson is organized like Kaiser Soze. You just have to be willing to do what the other guy isn't. Pretty much just go watch the usual suspects or else you won't get that joke
2: oh I get the joke it's bleak
1: <laughs> I did not so I'm just taking you at your word that you know be willing to do what the other guy isn't that's
2: okay. I, I feel like we really need to let you know how psychotic that joke is okay.
0: is like, I guess who's like who's another character in a movie or TV show or something that's that sadistic and evil but also like Machiavellian I guess like is it Walter White from Breaking Bad maybe yeah, this is a decent comparison.
2: Uh, somebody threatened to kill Kaiser Soze's family, so he killed his family to prove that they couldn't get one up on him. <laughs> yeah, Whoa. this is interesting. Whoa! Yeah. Okay. My God. Yes. So be willing to do what what you have to do to get the job done.
1: Okay. Short of that, apparently. <laughs> but...
2: <laughs> Why do you think I don't have a family?
1: <laughs> Getting shit done. <laughs> Okay, so that's our introduction for uh, our first you know, major villain, Harry Bennett. Um, Again, he's the guy who's going to be a problem at Ford, the main problem. So back to like the Ford Hunger March, which again is back in March of 1932. Despite the brutality of the service department, there was a saying in the plant among workers, uh, a saying I totally love, $6 a day plus parts. So... He's- The idea being this is kind of they're paid their wage. And of course, they're stealing equipment, parts, whatever, um, to make a buck on the side, which workers should not have to fucking do, obviously. But it's kind of a funny little thing that people were doing to get by. This is kind of like how things work at like the junkyard. right. The junkyard is where you go to get used parts off these cars. And everybody knows your pockets are full. Nobody's checking, but like everyone, it's factored in the <laughs> price of the parts because you're leaving, your toolbox is going to have the extra parts you need. Whatever you can fit, people are walking away out of the junkyard with. And that's just accepted and normal. Ford didn't like it as much, but hey, whatever.
0: There was only so much I, they could I do. I've never once thought to do that at the U-Pullet now. That I've been to u like all of two times and I'm pissed. I didn't think to just grab other things. Yep, Star-
1: I've Hobbits never are- paid for a junkyard sensor in my life. Not once. Yeah. If it fits in a pocket. That's where it's going.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? I had four pounds of fuses
1: in my pocket when I got there. <laughs> I bought those from home. Yeah. I mean, I'll at least take uh, hardware, put that in my toolbox or whatever. You know? Yeah. Or whenever you so like, let's say you need a part for whatever your car is. So if, if you're a listener and you're going to the junkyard, got to think, you know, when you go, let's say you're getting an alternator or a starter, whatever the fuck you're getting, doesn't matter. Take all the sensors you can. Everyone on the engine. Your cam sensors, your crankshaft position sensor, uh, all of that shit. Take it. Take it because it fits in a pocket and that's shit that goes bad uh, pretty regularly. And the OEM sensors are the best quality. Yeah. Going to the parts store, it's kind of a crapshoot sometimes. So get those OEM sensors. Clean them up. Put them in the new one when you need it. So good to have those extra parts.
2: I think I've told... the other guys on on Cars and Comrades this, but expert level junkyard hack. If you're not sure how to do something, find a junkyard that has the car that you're working on. Practice on the car in the junkyard. So if you break something or it doesn't go the way that you expect it to, you learned a lesson on a car that isn't yours.
0: <laughs> These are real pro tips, to be honest.
2: Yes. Yeah, well, that's. That's my best advice that I've ever given fucking anyone wanting to work <laughs> on their own car. Find a junkyard car that you can practice on. Also, if you're in a junkyard, fucking look around, dude. People leave shit. I found a brand new set of brake rotors in the junkyard like last month, and they charged me $7 a piece for them, and I flipped them for 100 bucks. Not for my car, but like fuck it, someone needs them, you know? Right. A guy in my van club found a huge box
1: of vintage porn. Okay. That's priceless. That's a weird thing to find in a junkyard, but okay. It was in someone's van. Of course, of course it was in a van. It wasn't going to be in any other type of car. No, it's definitely going to be in a van. I've, I've heard some stories of people finding things in police auction cars that the cops missed. So you might find someone's stash or a big wad of cash or something.
2: Now I want to go buy like police auction cars and just like hope I end up with like a kilo of coke.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You might not want to find that. Someone might be looking for it. Well, if they don't know where it was. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. so back in the plant, that's how workers were seeing their job. They knew they weren't getting paid enough. So one of the ways they got back was, you know, stealing parts and tools and shit. And, you know, good for them. Of course, this was risky with the Ford Service Department that we've described already, but, you know, hey, workers did what they could to get by. After the market crash of 1929, by 1932, 80% of the industry had stopped producing. Uh, Ford had laid off two thirds of its workforce, and the UAW and communist labor organizers planned a march. So this is like, you know, the depths of the, of the depression. And the auto industry is, which was at the time, had recently become like the biggest you know, major industry in the U S. So it employed a ton of fucking people because it was pretty labor intensive. um, And they had laid off a shitload of people. People were fucking starving and they knew that the automakers had the ability to cough up more jobs, more money and the economy fucking needed it. Uh, Of course you don't hear this kind of stuff. What you hear, you know, today is the, uh, that classic old story of, Oh, Henry Ford gave his workers a raise so that they could afford to buy the cars that they were making. How wonderful. Right. What a guy. Chill move. Yeah. When the reality is couldn't be further from the fucking truth. So they planned to march. Workers demanded jobs for laid off workers, the right to unionize medical aid in the plants because people got fucking hurt all the time. Better pay and an end to racial discrimination and hiring. Now. Mind you, this is 1932, and, like, th- that's an important thing to be asking for at this time. Again, this is, like, Detroit, so it's not, like, the South, per se, but, like, this is a big deal. So but
2: To now- make sure I'm keeping things straight, um, this was the Union doing this when they still had a lot of uh, Communist Party leaders? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so that because... Because CPUSA was doing killer fucking work in the 30s, man. Like their organizing efforts from everything I've read were second to none.
1: Yeah. And that so that was like this particular strike, which was not um exactly successful, I don't believe, but like this was a major precursor to what was like to come later. And yeah, they had real solid fucking demands. So they had all these demands. And 4,000 people marched from Detroit to the Dearborn River Rouge plant. Um, So it was a pretty sizable fucking march. Marchers were sprayed with freezing water on their way to the plant. And it was, you know, it was very cold. I don't remember the temperature that they said, but, you know, it was freezing water. So this was like, it was in the, I think the teens, to the 20s on this day. So it's crazy fucked up. You know, we have trouble organizing today and a lot of the A lot of what really killed unions is somehow just like legal fucking fictions that were created to stop unions. And it's crazy how effective that is when, you know, back in the day, I mean, they sprayed water at workers. They used actual guns on people uh, and that wasn't enough to stop workers. So it is it, it feels kind of sad that it was just shitty legislation to seem to hurt workers a lot more in the long run. So, on their way to the plant, they were sprayed with freezing water, uh, and Bennett led Ford's opposition to the Ford Hunger March of unemployed workers. Dearborn police and Ford Service Department men, including Bennett, opened fire on the protesters as they advanced toward the Ford River Rouge complex. Four marchers were shot to death, 60 others were shot and wounded, and Bennett himself was hospitalized after being hit with a rock. Now, as the story goes, he was like chasing workers down in his car and. Someone hit him with a fucking rock. Good on them. Didn't you know, kill him. It like it really did hurt him, though. He had like a concussion and shit like that. But uh, he did open fire on the crowd after that shooting indiscriminately. And when his police friends grabbed him to drag him to safety, he apparently reached into the holster. of One of the cops pulled their gun to continue firing on workers as he was being dragged away. Yeah,
2: I love the idea that like the cops are trying to like protect him while he's opening fire into a crowd. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Fucking awesome. awesome. And I mean, that's how fucking crazy this shit was. And this is weirdly like, this is kind of the March that you don't hear much about. Like we'll, we'll go into some other strikes and there's a lot of like more famous examples of strikes and stuff, but like this was one of the most fucking deadly. I mean, 60 people, were wounded by a live gunfire, uh, four of them dead, and they were sprayed with freezing water and shit. This was a fucking disaster. I mean, incredibly fucking dangerous. You know, workers really were had to be fucking brave to fight for rights at this time. Now, of course, following this, Edsel, Ford's only son, felt sympathy for the workers, uh, and he encouraged his father to negotiate with the union, which Ford told his son he should toughen up and be more like Harry Bennett. So, so Edsel Ford, while being an awful capitalist in his own respect, I mean, he's no socialist by any means, but like the guy was a lot less sadistic than his father. We can say that. The best
2: phrase we have for him is not a psychopath. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, this march really didn't lead to anything at the time. It was a huge effort. But it didn't really lead to any gains at the time. And this was kind of the indication that Ford was going to be particularly difficult to actually organize because this made it very clear just how violent the Ford Service Department was going to be and how much they were going to resist any attempts at unionizing. So, uh, yeah, this was kind of the first major loss and they knew it was going to be bad. Now. Later on, I think in, uh, I don't have the date, but the Kelsey Hayes Wheel Company, there was a strike there, and I believe, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take a guess. Someone can look this up and correct me if I'm wrong, but this was in 1936,
0: I believe. If you're wrong, you're off the podcast and we're not doing the rest of the episodes <laughs> on Walter <Multiple> Reuther.
1: <laughs> That's it, just, we'll get halfway through. <laughs> Purged. The way this goes is Walter decided that it would be smart to get at Ford through organizing a crucial supplier, right? So Kelsey Hayes was the company that made brake shoes for Ford. Uh, They made brake shoes and I believe wheels as well. Incredibly important. If you are making cars, they have to have brakes. And this is this is who made them. So this is kind of where like they want to organize Ford, but they know that like they're not going to be able to do that. This is where they kind of start thinking, hey, let's go after some of the suppliers.
0: So yeah, it's a damn smart move.
1: Yeah. And, and so uh, Victor, Walter's brother, actually got a job here. You know, Victor's working here and he's talking to workers. So I think this is like salting or whatever. And he's talking to workers in the plant. And one of the things they come up with real quick is that women are paid far less than men at the Kelsey Hayes plant, uh, which was normal at the time women were paid far less, whether even when they did more work than the men, which Victor admits pretty quickly. Yeah. There were tons of women who did plenty more work than he did and they got paid significantly less money. And that was one of the demands of the strike was that, you know, women would be paid equally uh, to men in the plant. So Walter decided to get to Ford to organizing their supplier. They had just gone through a uh, line speed up. So like, they wanted to make more shit, and they just sped up the assembly line. Hey, get with it, workers! You gotta work faster. Line's moving quicker, and you gotta keep up. And this, of course, led to injuries, and like you know, people were getting hurt pretty seriously too. There was um, there was a woman who fainted while working after this speed up, um, because the conditions were so fucking brutal, and so she she fainted. Victor then went to her. And he asked if she could faint on schedule to which she said, yes, she could. So the plan was was set that at a shift change in a coming week or whatever, she faints. And this is right at this shift change. So it's like this really kind of delicate balance. And Victor pulls the switch to shut down the, the assembly line. And he starts screaming about, you know, we're on strike blah. blah and so this is where the strike starts. And this is where we see I think this is the first time in the north where we see the introduction of the sit down strike. Now, the sit down strike starts in, I believe, auto plants in the south. So in Georgia, I think Don't call me on that. But I'm pretty sure I, I know for a fact the sit down strike was pioneered in the south. This is the first time it's being used in the north. Victor pulls the switch. They stop working and he's he gets up and he's given a, you know, a barn burner speech. Right about, you know, how this speed up sucks and how workers need to band together, blah, blah, blah. And of course, the manager comes down and, you know, he's screaming at people, get back to work, or you're fucking fired, blah, 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 blah. blah. And he gets to Victor, who's giving his speech. And he says, no, nah, motherfucker, you got to get back to work. And he says, no, nah, there's only one person that can get us back to work. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, who's that? Says his name is Walter Ruther. Here's his phone, right? Now, at the local 174 on the west side of Detroit, so the, the UAW local, Walter's waiting by the phone, and he knows this call is coming in. So, of course, call comes in, and Walter says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll come down there, I'll get him back to work. Walter shows up to the fucking plant, and apparently, according to Victor, he starts finishing the speech that Victor was in the middle of. Mm-hmm. The manager doesn't, he do not like this. He's like, hey, motherfucker, I thought you were supposed to get him back to work. And Walter says, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll get them back to work, but I got to organize them first. And this is where they start their, their organizing drive in the plant. So the strike goes on for nine days where they're blocking up this critical uh, supplies for Ford. And through this process, they get a bunch of people to join the union and Kelsey Hayes recognizes the unions and gives workers raises, including uh, especially for women who they started paying equally to men relatively, you know, Probably nice. not perfect, but yeah, I mean, really, it was, this was a huge win uh, for the UAW at the time. So this is the first instance that we see in Detroit of the sit-down strike, and it was incredibly
0: effective. So, Hey, just real quick, uh, Connor, sorry. Um, yeah. Is everybody cool if we go till uh, 6 uh, our time? I don't know what that is for you guys, so another 20 more minutes, and then we'll, we'll call that a night? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. All right, so just keep that in mind. Do like I guess another 10 to 15 minutes worth of material and then we'll leave the last few minutes for our wrap up and call it part 2 for there.
1: Sounds good. So let's go ahead and I will wrap it up with the Kelsey Hayes strike and let me see if there's any contextual bits I can add in here.
3: Board, I noticed earlier that you have an FN box behind you and I didn't want to interrupt anything, but is it a Scar? Uh unfortunately no. It is uh, oh. just an FN 15. That's still pretty sweet. Oh, nice, nice. nice. Oh, the LPVO game. Uh, uh, Vortex. Uh, yeah, Vortex, and then uh, Offset uh, Hollow Sun. Nice weapon.
0: Oh, still so sick.
3: <laughs> that looks almost exactly like my setup. Yours is probably just a little more Gucci than mine. Yeah, it's probably more Gucci. I, I spent too much money on this. Like, I got everything on deals for sure, but it was still pretty pricey. Yeah. That's sick. Like I would love to get a scar for sure.
0: Those yeah. things are fucking
3: sweet. I figured I'd ask. I figured the uh, the chances were pretty low, considering they're like thirty eight hundred dollars. But you never know. Yeah, fucking ridiculous. How much? Uh, I mean, they, you can find them low threes, but I think going right right now is like thirty six to thirty eight hundred. Oh. Yeah, they are definitely pretty expensive, but uh, they're so fucking badass. Yeah, and they just came out with the non-reciprocating charging handle version, which is yeah, which I really like. It's even more tempting. Yeah. Uh, I'm oh, about yeah. to buy a suppressor. Oh, really? Yeah,
1: I've been looking into that. I don't know. If I can do it
2: right,
3: right. now, but- yeah, it's um, depending on what suppressor you're buying, like it's gonna that's like the biggest cost of it. But then you also have the two hundred dollar tax stamp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, but four the easiest way. Wi- What's that? Even like four months of waiting oh that's like no you wish it was four months away oh, yeah, I, mean, I think <laughs> that's what their website says but oh yeah that's what they say but in practice it's like you're waiting nine to twelve months cool Certain. yeah nice and then you are definitely on the list oh yeah, oh, yeah. for sure but I really fucking want a suppressor so oh to tie that to the
0: automotive things I've seen people make them out of uh, oil filters Oh yeah, you could absolutely do that. Yeah, we actually okay. mentioned that last week because I was trying to—I was fumbling for the word. It's solvent trap. But if you start searching for any kind of gun parts online, you will get recommended solvent traps. Which again, don't fucking buy one. Don't put it you together. You do it
3: straight up with a Fram oil filter, though. Too. You just need the thread adapter and some crazy big sights. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're gonna need some really tall sights. Stack a couple risers. I can do it with a set of blueprints and a wave.
1: Well, so you could also, if you use a 350Z uh, oil filter, don't need big sights. Very, very small. Nice. Yeah. Just so you know, this probably isn't going to air, so (laughs) I don't don't care (laughs) if it does. But uh, yeah, the 350Z uses a very, very small. For
3: educational purposes only.
1: Yeah. It's a very small oil filter, so you can get away with uh, using it for that. The ones I saw, they were those like big diesel truck
3: filters, I think, to make it more silent. But I don't know. Yeah, some of those oil filters work like better than a lot of manufactured suppressors.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Really? Yeah. Oh, I'm about That's to form weird. one a frame. <laughs> yeah, maybe not in terms of like longevity. Like they're not gonna like after like a few thousand rounds, it's not gonna hold up nearly as well. But like the first few hundred rounds, they're gonna. It's usually quieter than like your hmm. average mid-priced uh, suppressor.
2: Well, that's that's funny because they're so at that point they're so disposable. It is cheaper to just exactly. keep through them. <laughs> yeah. What do you just do you just drill it out or
3: no? You yeah. just shoot through it. You screw it the fuck on. Drill your own hole with a bullet. Call it good. That seems awfully dangerous. I it not like going to be accurate, but after that, you're good. Is that really how you would do it? I, I would assume yeah. you would drill it out. No, huh? You could just shoot through it. Call it <laughs> good. Okay. I love that. Wild, you could do that with the those solvent traps that aren't drilled out. I did
0: like, see somebody on like a, a forum that tried that, and it didn't go so well for them. Like it kind of went off. Yeah, and it just, it yeah up.
3: depending on which one it is, but especially like oil filters, like just shoot through that motherfucker.
2: We'll, we'll have to have like a separate conversation where we discuss firearms because because I own and understand basic safety, but the, I, I am not like deep in the weeds with that stuff.
0: It ends up sounding very much like your car talk where you start talking about manufacturers and parts and people judge you for which brand you went with on which part and everything.
3: <laughs> yeah, a lot of crossover yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, how you guys talk about cars is how I talk about guns. It's exactly the same. <laughs> Good.
2: Okay, that tracks, yeah. Now I'm curious was more expensive. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, word of advice, don't get into both. You will have no money ever. Oh my anything. god. <laughs> oh yeah, You'll
3: be so fucking poor and in debt if you I mean it's like <laughs> oh, y'all I've got like four expensive ass fucking hobbies.
0: Let me guess guitars. No. Nope. <laughs> that's another one you can sink a shit ton of money into for no fucking reason.
1: That's my number 3, yeah.
2: I am going to show my nerd colors here, dude. I got a huge Warhammer 40K army. That shit. Oh my god. Uh, I've heard so that's expensive. Money. Oh my god, I've
1: heard that's yeah. outrageous.
2: Yo, and like I I kind of I'm counting multiple like automotive things as as like separate things, but like Drag racing, Harleys, and like just hopping up your regular ass vehicles. Like, Harley motors are wild. Like, it's dumb how expensive they are.
1: They're also air cooled, and I'm very against them for that reason.
2: I'm very pro them for that reason.
1: (laughs) Reject modernity,
2: embrace Harley Davidson. (laughs) Sorry if you started rocking Porsches because they're air cooled. We can't be (laughs) friends anymore. No, strictly V twin all right, good. You should put a V-Twin and a Porsche, though. That would be dope. <laughs> and really piss off yeah. some people. Like, hey, it's still air-cooled, so... Wait, Con- Connor, you're against Harleys because they're air-cooled? Every motorcycle from
1: that era was air-cooled. Uh, yeah, but they're still doing it. That's the fucking difference. That's the difference. Are the new ones water-cooled? The I guess okay. the newest ones as of the last few years. You can still yeah. get, I'm pretty sure, air-cooled uh, Harleys, though. No.
2: Um, they released the new engine that they're putting in the Sportster, and it is water-cooled. They might still have a big twin model that's air-cooled, but they have the bigger, like the larger displacement ones are oil-cooled, actually.
1: I mean, that's fine. Yeah. It's just Harley's had like that where the back cylinder would wear out faster than the front one because it wasn't cooled.
2: Yeah, I don't know how much of an issue that's been in decades. I think that's more old-school stuff, but...
1: Yeah. Okay. Could be. I also don't like that. I don't like Harley for lots of reasons. Let's just say.
2: They're like most of the people who own them suck.
1: And they're expensive. True. And they're mostly about Me. the accessories and the gear. They make decent bikes for a lifestyle brand. Okay. There you go. <laughs> Here you, you know, go. I, I haven't seen a V twin in a uh, Porsche, but I did see someone took a Moto Goosey engine and put it in a Fiat 500. That was pretty sick. Fucking sick. But
2: I like how um, Mike said God. we've got 20 minutes left, so we stopped
3: talking about <laughs> the <laughs> Guns and cars, guys. We got it.
0: Let's use it this time. I was gonna interrupt and say, Connor, is there any context that you wanted to give on this next strike before we wrap it up for the night?
1: Um no, not really. So I mean, and I don't know, maybe you just cut all this out and like just move to me saying that's all I have for the Kelsey Hayes strike. But um yeah. I mean that's that's pretty much what I've got for the Kelsey Hayes strike. It was Walter and Victor put their heads together, came up with an idea to get into the plant. They did, and then they organized a sit down strike. Uh, so this was again the first time they did the sit down to great effect. And the sit down strike is basically going to be their tool from this point in the uh, late 30s to the mid 40s. I mean the sit down strike I think becomes illegal after taft hartley i'm pretty sure but like the sit down strike just to be clear is where instead of walking off the job and like going outside to pick it they just sit down in the fucking plant and make sure that the manufacturer can't operate the machinery because there's workers in the way so it's a pretty genius way to do it where it's like you're not giving them access to their capital to like bring in scabs and like run this shit without you you're clogging up both the labor and the capital in in the form of the machinery. So like literal wrench in the gear, essentially effective
0: protest, which Connor, are you telling me that since then that over the years of uh, labor unions slowly, but surely losing their power in America, that the law has been structured in such a way that any effective protest has been made illegal, therefore giving the cops a reason and justification to come in and violently break you up and arrest you. Whereas ineffective protest is totally celebrated. And um you know permitted in zones that are designated for exactly that
1: i'm not going to say that's exactly what i'm saying <laughs> but that's exactly what i'm saying
0: yes that's 100% <laughs> yeah
1: that's it and like that's the moral of the story and i think that's why i want to keep and i'm sure this is going to get real fucking old i don't know if i'll do this in every one of these episodes we do but those questions i kind of raise at the beginning that's why i'm raising them the 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 question about legality I think is something we have to start to challenge. Um, and maybe that's just like my inner, you know, anarchists just being like, hey, maybe we should just like not follow these laws. Like, what the yeah. fuck are they gonna do? That i want to ask that question. What the fuck are they gonna do? Um, because we don't see sit-down strikes anymore, and shit is getting worse for workers. So And verify.
3: Yeah. So yeah. I'm just saying All right. I'm that's sorry. what I want to so that's I'm the kind of buy a suppressor and register it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But yeah, that's the moral of the, at least this part of the story is let's question what all this is for. You know, what does it mean to make concessions? What, you know, what kind of protest is effective and how should we think about making those sorts of decisions? How do we uh, plan for that kind of stuff? Uh, The Kelsey Hayes strike was a win. The hunger march on Ford was not such a win. It probably should have been, but of course, Henry Ford was just willing to be that much more fucking craven than they expected. So workers died in that fight. And it's a story that I think gets kind of swept under the rug in a lot of the documentaries and a lot of the discussion of the labor movement in general. That one isn't talked about as much. And I mean, there was, it was fucking terribly brutal. So Uh, Anyway, that's kind of where we're at now. Coming up on the next part, I'm going to stop saying how many parts we're going to do because it seems like it keeps getting longer and longer. Um, (laughs) But kind of what we're going to go through next for sure is going to be the GM sit-down strike, followed by what we now know today as the Battle of the Overpass, which was a leafleting effort at Ford. So these are going to be pretty big, pivotal moments for uh, Walter and Victor Ruther. And they're kind of actual on the ground organizing and this is what propels them to or part of what propels them to leadership within the uaw uh, and the labor movement more broadly so that's where we're at and that's where we'll be picking up with the next oh i like it as a good hunger
2: or the hunger march
1: is that what you said it was yeah it's you can call it a number of things i mean it would you could call it the march on i think i've heard it called the dearborn march the march on river rouge well, they called I,
2: specifically, it. I find that interesting because I know that CPUSA organized similar marches in that era down south when they were doing the uh, drive for the uh, sharecroppers unions. So now I'm like, I don't know, I have like a, a lot of fascination with like the Communist Party of the USA in like that era because that seemed to be when they were like actually getting shit done and like yep. making real moves and weren't like trying to revise themselves out of relevance.
1: And I think a lot of I think a lot of the go between between what was happening in organizing efforts in the South and the North um, was probably the Communist Party was probably sharing a lot of this information and making sure that they knew what worked and what didn't. And that's how information was being spread. Uh, And that's how, you know, again, we see solidarity strikes and stuff. That kind of stuff, I think, was the Communist Party infrastructure was effective at this time. So, you know, for all the criticisms that we may or may not have, that kind of interconnectedness made a huge difference in organizing efforts, it seems.
2: So. I don't know if anyone else in here has read the book Hammer and Ho, but... I was just uh, about to bring that up. I, it's on my list to read. Um, I haven't finished it because I'm really good at getting three quarters of the way through a book and then getting distracted. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, it's about how uh, the, the Communist Party was able to organize. It was It was something like... 70,000 people in the South, like uh, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, primarily Alabama, I think. And it was it was one of the largest, if I remember correctly, it was the, the largest membership base for CPUSA at the time. And it was mostly in poor black sharecroppers. And yeah, like that, you know, they, they had hunger marches. They like tried to organize strikes. There was like if, if you're interested in that era of labor organizing, that's a really great book to check out it's what really initially piqued my interest in that era of CPUSA.
1: Yeah. And um, this reminded me, I I was thinking we might want to do an episode in the future on the Numi plant in California. I think I might've mentioned it in a previous episode because it's it's now a Tesla plant, but it was a GM plant back in the day. And a lot of the Connor, a lot of the issues that you were talking about came up back then also, you know, but it was like in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Um, keeps repeating. Yeah. <laughs> Never ends, apparently. So, um, yeah. But, and, and it's going on with Tesla today still. So, so, yeah, that's all I got for this installment. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Come check out our podcast if you're not one of our listeners listening to this. And, you know, if you're not on our social media, we're on Instagram, Facebook, marginally, Twitter, Reddit, Hexbear, you know,
0: search cars and comrades and we should come right up so check us out oh yeah cool thank you for doing that i appreciate you uh taking the lead on these and uh doing all this research it's uh entertaining to listen to because like i said i you know i myself with walter Ruther and his story and everything but hearing it all in depth like this is uh it's pretty great to uh i like story time like this this is fun
1: i just hope i'm like not rambling too much because i'm no, like no it's all good, dude. <laughs> okay no, this is solid okay it's a very My interesting book. story, I think.
2: You guys will appreciate, too, when it gets to, like, the 60s and 70s, and I get to start going on about Drum, because then we get to, to mix, like, a Walter Ruther as a, a labor organizer with also an actual Marxist-Leninist subset within the UAW.
1: Hell yeah. I mean, the part of that movie, uh, is it's finally got the news, right? Yeah. The, like, first few minutes of that movie are great, because the guy, I forget what his name is, just explains Marxism, like, just perfectly. It's really well done. It was at that time where, like, you know, you get, like, the Black Panther Party and I mean, drum and stuff. Their take on Marxism was very, very enticing to a lot of people. I mean, they just they put it in a way that, like, my dumb ass just can't. I'm not. Yeah. Technically, I'm not a Marxist. Leninist, So, like, I can't put it that great anyway. But they put it. They had a really good way of speaking to people that I'm like, yeah, that I'm oh, with boy. that. Like the black Panthers
2: literally had reading programs where they were teaching people to read using like capital and shit. So like, yeah, it's easy to get the idea across.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That'd be a tough one to learn on.
2: I've heard that from a lot of places, but I've never seen any sort of confirmation that that was what they were learning to read with. It's a fun story. I don't know if it's true. Yeah. Actually, no, no, no. There was, there was some intense literature that, uh, I forget the book off the top of my head. Um, yeah, there was a book by a, for a Black Panther Party member where he talked about them learning to read using. It wasn't capital specifically, but it was it was some pretty intense political economy kind of stuff.
0: I remember hearing that they had to look up like every other word, but they just would stick with a paragraph or a page for as long as it took. And they would get through I think,
1: it. Yeah, I feel like that was um, I think that was an interview with Angela Davis where I, I heard that
0: same thing. I think it was uh, Angela Davis who said that I could be wrong. Though. It could be multiple people who said that. Uh, but anyway, let's finish up with the uh, the plugs. Ward go ahead and plug your pages.
3: Yeah. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at millennial Leftist, common spelling, no underscore. And on Twitter at Ward Lolly, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y.
0: And then uh, so for Jaron we'll plug his website, that's J-A-R-O-N, P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N dot com. And uh, for Cosper, their Patreon is patreon.com slash C O S P E R underscore. Uh, our Twitter is Twitter slash TurnLeftistPod. And for everything else, just find us on Linktree. That's Linktree slash join Leftist. And I think that's about it. I'm going to leave off uh, the Patreon since we're already running into like a three-hour episode. But uh, I will uh, plug the Patreons again next time. But needless to say, thank you all for your contributions. We greatly appreciate it. So, um, yeah, we'll pick up next week with the continuation of the Walter Ruther story. Do part three of however many it takes. I'm sorry. No, dude, like I said, I can't tell you how down I am. Okay, great. It's been fun. Thanks again, guys. All right, we'll see you next time. Yep. Have a good one. Adios. you
3: lucky hundred shot of didn't the welds on the intake. Now me and the bad scientist gotta rip apart the block replace the piston rings. You fried.
2: The free market mythology it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded
0: pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation will produce the best results for all of us through something called the invisible hand. (laughs) My
3: calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some
1: serious shit. century, the U.S. government has done everything in its power to snuff out alternatives to its rule, from roundups to mass arrests of thousands of anarchists, socialists, leftists in the U.S.,
2: making it illegal to even be a communist, to carrying out military
1: interventions in over 70 nations just since World War II, causing untold human misery, all in the name of fighting ideas.
3: What are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.
4: You can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail a revolution.